When you do what you love, like running, racing, enjoying the great outdoors, you want to do it for life. You need to make a change, and that's what Inside Tracker is all about. Founded in 2009 by scientists in aging, genetics, and biometric data from MIT, Tufts, and Harvard, Inside Tracker is a personalized health and wellness platform like no other. It's purpose built to help you live a longer, more productive life. The first time you use Inside Tracker, its patented algorithm analyzes your biometric data and offers you a clearer picture than you've ever had of what's going on inside your body. Next, Inside Tracker provides you a concrete, science-backed action plan for reaching your health and performance goals. Then, using the Inside Tracker app, they track your progress every day, every step of the way. For a limited time, DNF listeners get 25% off the entire Inside Tracker store. Go to insidetracker.com/dirt to get your discount code to start using Inside Tracker today because change is an inside job. life, a strong attachment to Jack Kerouac and his book On the Road starts to feel a bit embarrassing. For someone who spent a significant amount of their life meditating in the mountains, it's not a particularly enlightened work of literature. The carousel of underdeveloped female characters fades into the background as some plot-like thing that is also most certainly not a plot in the traditional sense expands to fill the foreground. A sad Sal Paradise meets total dude Dean Moriarty, and the two crisscross America, looking for girls, marrying girls, and abandoning those girls via various forms of 1950s transportation. I want to be clear that I love this book despite its pathological blindness to privilege and others' pain. Even though that love feels at best embarrassing and at worst totally at odds of the values of respect and empathy that I hold near and dear. Liking this book a bit too much, as I do, almost signals a blind affinity for some juvenile idea of freedom unattainable for most folks who, unlike Kerouac, don't live with their mothers. But what this book captures better than any other book or piece of art is a raw sense of want. This book is a flashing neon sign directing us to simply give in to our longing for fear of being cowards, or worse, boring. Legend has it, and it is a legend, that Kerouac wrote the book on a continuous 120-foot scroll of typing paper in one divinely, or Benzedrine-inspired burst. This is a complete myth, a backstory crafted to shore up Kerouac's longing to be seen as an improvisational genius, gifted in spontaneity. Nothing takes the shine off the thin veneer of genius, quite like knowing that every piece of literature you know and love was 99% perspiration, 1% inspiration, and about 10% moving commas around and spending time on thesaurus.com. On the Road went through several drafts between 1951 and 1957, when Viking Press finally published it. And the person who bought most into its message of unmediated and unregulated desire was Kerouac himself. Like the only person unable to heed Saul Paradise's warning of the damage and strain that excess places on relationships and creative work was his real-world counterpart. Unable to weather fame's storm, Kerouac was adrift on a sea of alcohol and drug abuse. In trying so hard to transcend something, he had fallen into a trap of his own making. 
While we haven't all written a seminal work that defined the beat generation, many of us are perfectly acquainted with accidental self-destruction as a means of avoiding vulnerability. Perhaps out of some sense of fear that our success was accidental or unearned, we try to beat the big reveal to the punch by proving it to be true through our own undoing. Because so much of success, in terms of external recognition and results, is out of our control and, honestly, a bit random. We try to regain a sense of autonomy by taking control of our own destruction in one million ways, big and small. We're afraid we're not enough, and so we run, or drink, or work, or something, way too much. This is a story about a writer who, like Kerouac, struggled with excess and how vulnerable it feels to get exactly what you want. This is DNF from Trail Runner magazine. I'm Zoe Rome. Alison Bechtel is not necessarily known as a trail runner. She's Vermont's third cartoonist laureate and MacArthur genius, author of several graphic memoirs, one of which was made into a Tony Award-winning Broadway musical. What she is slightly less known for is her enthusiasm for exercise of all sorts. This interest started when she was a kid one day as she was poring through a favorite comic book. An advertisement caught her attention. You know, Charles Atlas in his leopard print speedos, like urging you to get his program so you could get big and strong and beat up the bullies on the beach. I totally wanted to be big and strong like Charles Atlas. And there were all these different kinds of ads. And one day, finally, when I was around nine years old, I responded to an ad that promised it would deliver me the secret to superhuman strength for the price of $1. Superhuman strength for one measly buck Allison was in. It was disappointing when it arrived. It was just a, you know, like a martial arts handbook that I couldn't make any sense out of as a kid. But the idea had been planted that there was some way to get superhuman strength, maybe not through a mail order novelty catalog, but I was gonna figure another way out. So if martial arts weren't the secret to superhuman strength, what was it? It wasn't until a couple of years later when Allison would try running and start to think she had found the answer. My first runs were very short. You know, I didn't know anything about running. It was in the 70s. I was a teenager living in a, a rural town in Pennsylvania. Nobody I knew ran. I, I don't really even remember how I got this idea, except in the 70s, it was just like, in the zeitgeist. You know, I must have seen a magazine cover, or must have heard about it on a TV show, but I found it very appealing. And one day I just like decided I was gonna run up the street to my grandmother's house. It's like less than half a mile. And that was fun. And then I ran home. And pretty soon I kept doing that more and more. And I would go all the way without stopping at my grandmother's house. Then I got the idea, well, I want to go even further. There was this lovely loop that went out around the, the outskirts of my town, out past a hill called the Bake Oven, and I was going to run all the way out around the Bake Oven loop. I don't even know how far it was. Later, I measured it, and it was 3.2 miles. And I decided I was going to run as far as I could and stop and walk if I couldn't keep running. And I brought um, some gorp in my jeans pockets in case I got tired. I didn't really know what running was like. My only context for it was like a hike. So I brought this gorp and I started running and I didn't get tired. I just kept going. I ran down the street to the creek and down past the cemetery and across the highway and out 
into the farmland and around uh, the front of the bake oven and back in through town. I just kept going. And it was this amazing feeling to do something so concrete, you know, and to succeed at it uh, was an amazing sensation. Uh, I started doing it more and more, just going out for that three-mile loop whenever I felt pent up or anything, really. It would just always make me feel better. Allison started jogging to her grandma's house nonstop. Those runs became an outlet for Allison, a time and space where she could really be herself, away from family, school, and the pressures of teenage life. And though she didn't quite have the language for it at the time, Allison is gay, and running, exercise, gave her a way to feel at home in herself and in her body that she hadn't found anywhere else. The more she ran, the more it felt like she needed to run. I was an adolescent. God knows what's happening for people at that stage of life. It was just, everything was excruciating, you know? Um, I, looking back, I'm sure the fact that I was a lesbian and didn't know that was part of it, you know, just like I didn't understand what was happening. And I was also just a very introverted person. I would go to school and not open my mouth all day, and I'd come home just like with so much pent-up energy because I hadn't really been expressing myself at, at all. So that was part of it. While the horrors of puberty fell outside Allison's locus of control, she found a transformative power in the focus and discipline that came with her regular runs around the Pennsylvania countryside. To transcend means to pass beyond the limits of something, and every runner is somewhat acquainted with the quotidian transcendence that exercise provides. Each time you run just a bit further or just a bit faster, you're pushing past the limits of what you thought was possible in some small way. On those runs, Allison was able to access that place that a lot of us have been. Some may call it a runner's high or some kind of sweaty satori. Was this the secret to superhuman strength? The further Allison ran, the more she found that she was running beyond just mere physical limits, but that the boundaries of her ego, herself, started to fade into the humid summer air. I ran for a long time. I ran into my 20s and 30s, even as I took up lots of other activities, karate and yoga and skiing and biking. Running was always part of that mix and something I just loved to do. But one day, I hurt my knee. I was out walking on in the brook near my house and I slipped on the mossy rocks and I bashed my knee on a rock. And not only did I bash my knee on a rock, <laughs> I had done it after drinking a beer. So I'd been a little buzzed and I just felt like Oh man, I caused this myself. That was just so stupid. Maybe I would have slipped anyhow, who knows, but I felt very guilty about it and it just kind of nagged at me. I didn't even go to a doctor about this injury because I just felt so ashamed of it, I think. And it didn't get better, you know? At that point in my life, I'd had certain a certain number of injuries and they'd always gone away, but this one didn't really get better. And eventually I realized I, I couldn't run without a lot of pain, so I stopped running. I did a couple years in go to my doctor and say, well, you know, what am I going to do? And he was like, well, start biking more. He wasn't much help. So I did. I stopped running and I just, you know, kept pursuing these other sports. As part of her sort of psychological coping with injury, Allison started to resent running. I started looking at runners and thinking, oh my God, <clears throat> that guy's just destroying his knees. He's not going to be able to walk. You know, there's so much impact when you run. I, I kind of became an anti-runner. I was like, oh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do these lovely, you know, 
low impact things like biking and inline skating and skiing and that's good or the stairmaster i was a big stairmaster fiend when i'd go to the gym um so that's what i did and i you know that certainly did maintain a certain amount of cardiovascular fitness over the years but i yeah i didn't run for quite a long time almost 20 years about maybe 17 or 18 years no running while Allison shifted her focus to lower impact activities, the stress of daily life started to wear on her. Allison had struggled with depression and anxiety in her 20s and thought that drinking probably made those issues worse. A kind of just feeling of dread, like that something's going to go wrong, um, a feeling like I'm not doing enough, a feeling of inexplicable guilt, <laughs> like... I did something wrong, even though I didn't, I didn't actually do something wrong. Um, just a, like, I, I'm always carrying around this kind of bad feeling. And it's, it's very much something from my family, my childhood, just like something that got programmed into my neural circuitry um, and that I've been trying to undo. So she had quit drinking cold turkey for about a decade. That is, until the stress of relationships and trying to produce a weekly cartoon started to wear on her. She quit doing the comic strip that she had done for most of her life and had written one very successful memoir and one less successful memoir. The anxiety that she had felt her whole life welled up again. Her first memoir was made into a Broadway play, and so she was flying all over promoting that musical, which wasn't exactly her work, but wasn't not her work, but it was taking up more and more of her time and energy in ways that didn't exactly fill her creative cup. Allison's habits had always tended a bit towards excess. She didn't just work, she worked a lot and hard. She didn't just exercise, she exercised a lot and hard. Her drinking started to fall into that same pattern. Until my, my life started getting kind of more stressful and I realized I was anxious a lot and I started thinking, you know, the last time I was relaxed was when I drank. Maybe I should try that again, which is a really bad idea. And if anyone is ever thinking that, anyone listening to this might be considering that, don't do it. But I did do it. So at the same time that I, I damaged my knee, I was also very gradually starting to develop just this habit of drinking every day with dinner. You know, like I just had to have my glass of wine every night. It didn't feel like a problem. She wasn't getting drunk. She was just drinking, maybe more than she really wanted. It felt like the only way Allison could shut off the whirlwind of thoughts in her head, a momentary taming of the ego. Whatever the secret to superhuman strength was, this wasn't it. I, for me, it's anxiety management. I don't think I even realized earlier in my life how anxious I was or what even anxiety is. Like I just, <laughs> this was just, you know, the air I breathed. But she was healthy, mostly. Now in her 50s, she exercised almost every day, even though she hadn't run in almost two decades. She went on long bike rides when she was at home and did the New York Times seven-minute high-intensity interval workout when she was on the road. It didn't really feel like the best shape she had ever been in, but it felt like a little something to hold the age-related deterioration at bay, like a sandbag seawall stealing itself against an inevitable tide. Almost every aspect of her life had started to feel like high-intensity interval training. Slowing down felt like giving up or going backwards. She was working crazy hours, drawing until late into the night, at which point she'd be so keyed up, she'd need a couple glasses of wine to calm the low thrum of anxiety in her brain. 
failure means just losing confidence in myself, feeling stuck. I've always been terrified of writer's block, even though I don't even quite believe in it. But I do get, you know, I have periods in my life when I have a hard time working for whatever reason. I have too many ideas. I, I don't have faith in my ideas. That for me is a kind of failure. And that's that's the state I was in during my, my big surface, you know, before I really ramped up my, my running in the past several years. The running was definitely the linchpin of everything that made me get unstuck in my work. I think that drinking was a big problem in terms of being stuck because whatever momentum I would build up with my work, whatever ideas I would start to knit together during the day, I'd go, you know, have a couple of glasses of wine that night. And that felt like the equivalent of unraveling everything I'd done that day. I'd wake up the next morning and have to like start over. And without that drinking, I, I was able to really start linking things together and really making forward progress with my work. Allison started writing her exercise memoir, The Secret to Superhuman Strength. But she figured she needed to do a little more research as well. And that research helped introduce running back into her life. So I got a Fitbit. And I, I could write that off on my taxes since I was researching it for this book. <laughs> and I loved the Fitbit. It was amazing. Um, I, I loved how clear that metric was. Are you going to hit your 10,000 steps or not? It was like just really clear, very satisfying when I did it. And um, I became, you know, a regular, I started walking a lot. I realized how over, over time I really had stopped, not only stopped running, but stopped walking. You know, I live in the country and I drive when I have to go anywhere. And I, I really had stopped walking. So that was a real awakening. I loved how it felt to walk. I loved how my body felt. Um, and then one day I, I, had, I hadn't gotten my 10,000 steps in and I was running out of time. So I decided to run just to get it over more quickly on a treadmill. And it was amazing. I, I, I had forgotten what running did to my mind. Like my, in that half hour run, my mind just totally cleared and calmed down. Uh, the next day I felt like I had been run over by a steamroller. But the running itself had felt really good. And it was interesting to me that I felt so, you know, wrecked the next day because I thought I'd been in pretty good shape. But clearly running did something that all these other activities, weightlifting, yoga, skiing, biking, that those things didn't touch. And so I, I started doing it again. Um, I really loved the way it made me feel mentally, you know, and, and physically, but mostly it was mental. And it was hard, you know, at that point I was in my 50s and it took me quite a while to really get it back. You know, it was like, it was like two years of very painful, arduous running, and like feeling like I couldn't really get my breath. And, um, but finally I, I got in shape you know, got to the point where it was just pretty easy to go out for a run. She started running more frequently, learning how to cooperate with and listen to her aging body. To cultivate her running practice, Allison would bribe herself with new pairs of shoes or music to get out there and get on her run. 
Eventually, that feeling of needing to bribe herself faded into a genuine desire to escape to the woods and process feelings from the day. It starts out with this very gradual incline. Like, it looks flat, but it's really going uphill, so it, like, kicks your ass. And then it comes to a point where it goes pretty steeply downhill. So that's a nice reward. And that's quite effortless. You just sort of just get propelled downhill. Well, then I turn around and come back up that steep hill. And that's the really hard part. You know, on a good day, I just get completely lost in it. You know, when I'm not in shape, if I haven't been doing it regularly, it's, it's awful. And I'm just like desperately trying to keep my feet moving. And I'm, you know, just looking at the bend up in the road up ahead, knowing that that's where I need to get to. But on a good day, I just forget all of that. And I just kind of float up the hill. And those runs, they transformed Allison. And it really started to seep into me in a deep way. Like I started realizing that not only was my pulse lowering, but I really felt calm. And I'm, I'm an anxious person. I rarely feel calm. So it was, it was quite notable to realize I could just like sit still and have a conversation with my partner without having to jump up and do seven things. That was very much a byproduct of, of running and this weird, deep calm that had started to grip me. And then what I found was I didn't need to drink in the same way I had always felt compelled. Okay, got to have my glass of wine. It's time for dinner. And I'd even over this period of time begun drinking hard alcohol, like as a nightcap, which is such a terrible idea. I would always think it was helping me to unwind and sleep better. It's totally the opposite. If you, if anyone ever tells you alcohol helps you to sleep better, they're wrong. But I, I believed it or talked myself into it. I've, I finally realized I don't need to have this um, slug of scotch at bedtime. I actually feel quite, you know, relaxed and tired. I noticed that I wasn't craving wine anymore. And I thought that had been just like a fact of life. Like I was never going to kick that habit. I would just always be one of those people who had to have their wine or something would happen. Just before the pandemic hit, my partner said, you know what, let's just take a break from alcohol altogether. And I was like, oh my God, I don't think I can do that. But because I was doing it with her, I felt like that just gave me more, um, more energy for it. Like we were in it together, you know? And I actually was able to do it. In part, you know, I think a lot due to the running and in part due to the fact that I was, had this compact with her, you know, like we were both going to do it. But what an amazing feeling to, ha- to break the grip of that habit, to become free of that need every day to have this, to do this thing, you know. Allison did something that is so hard to do. She quit one harmful thing without subbing in another. She was able to use running to help manage her anxiety and eliminate her dependence on alcohol. And for the first time, she wasn't overly dependent on anything, not alcohol and not exercise. She was able to just let running be running. I think a lot of us have probably tread that thin line between self-improvement and self-destruction when it comes to exercise or work or whatever material we use to build a shoddy bridge over the abyss of existence. Perhaps because we know that material is flawed and the project is pointless, we just try to shore it up with more. I just feel like I'm somehow never enough just on my own. Like I have to be achieving something, accomplishing something. And so 
whatever it is, uh, running, work, even drinking, like that's what I do. More miles, higher vert, faster strides, longer races, a belt buckle, another belt buckle, a book, a MacArthur Genius Grant, or a Tony Award-winning musical based on a traumatic upbringing. Whatever it is, it won't be enough to bridge that gap. In her book, The Secret to Superhuman Strength, Allison follows the stories of other writers who struggle with a similar bent towards blurring the line between self-discovery and self-destruction. I think it's funny as a like a middle-aged feminist to be writing about Jack Kerouac because he's, you know, such a bro. But I did st- start to feel a kind of comradeship with him. Like, I mean, he was a severe alcoholic and very self-destructive you know, I'm not anything in his league, but I could start to see how he was, you know, kind of afraid of success in a way. And it was when he really did break through and on the road got published that he started really falling apart. Like he somehow couldn't handle getting the thing he'd been working for for so long. It's sort of related to that as someone who attained a measure of success later in life and I mean, I, did, I didn't self-destruct with it, but it was it was intense. It's hard to manage um, when you get the thing you thought you wanted. The voice in your head that whispers you aren't enough at the end of a marathon won't be satisfied at the finish line of a 100-miler or a 200-miler because the problem is thinking that there's a problem to fix in the first place. Perhaps what running does best is help reveal the absurdity in thinking that we are problems that can be solved. It's just trail running turtles all the way down. Allison found that running didn't just help to ease her dependence on alcohol for stress relief. It actually helped her cartooning, too. And the thing about the drawing part of the job is it's it's a very embodied activity. It's the opposite of sitting on the computer and just typing. It's, you're really touching paper and manipulating a pen and dealing with ink and water and um, it's very sensual. You have to pay attention. You have to be careful of your body position. Um, it's, it's active. It's like a physical activity that I love. And I, I think it's, it really helps me to draw to be physically fit. Um, if I didn't work out the way I do, I don't think I would be able to draw quite as well. I would just wouldn't be able to move or work for as long or, or have the kind of stillness in my hand that I need. So I feel like it very directly, running and other exercise really feeds into that. The basic tenet of the entire universe is a paradox, like paradox forms everything. <laughs> Things are what they are and then they're absolutely not what they are. For, for me, that, that quest for strength throughout my life really flipped into its opposite, became, became a, a quest to really accept my own vulnerability, my own interdependence with other people. And I think um, that kind of reversal, that paradoxical kind of opposite is just how everything works on some level. I think that maybe we're not always out there to feel strong, but rather to experiment with our own vulnerability. If you want to feel invincible or immortal, trail running is just about the last place to find that. Instead, I think it's one of the most efficient routes towards confronting mortality, vulnerability, and interdependence. 
Jack Kerouac, in his quest for more, had just ended up in a worse place than where he'd started, in St. Petersburg, Florida, living with his mother at age 47, when he died of a hemorrhage from all those years of excess. Perhaps it was that striving towards transcendence that took him careening away from it. Running can take us to that place where body and mind become one, and our concept of the self starts to glimmer at its edges and fade into what? I don't know. I'm just a girl standing in front of a podcast, contemplating life, the universe, and trail running. I wish I had something more inspirational to say than that life is fleeting and fragile, and attempts to deny that truth will only bring you closer to it. But I am not in the business of inspiring. I'm just here for truth-telling. The secret to superhuman strength is that there is no secret, and the goal was always to embrace softness and vulnerability. The only thing to transcend is the idea that there is something to transcend. That's the secret. This episode of DNF was written and produced by me, Zoe Rome, for Trail Runner Magazine. Theme music by the band Lotus. Other music is written and performed by Bitbeak. If you like this podcast, take a second to rate and review it on your favorite platform. You can find this episode and other installments of DNF at trailrunnermag.com.